0: the study of the classics read mostly in English translation from Homer uh, through the uh, second half of the 20th century. Writings in philosophy, literature, history, theology, uh, psychology, psychiatry, a range of things. Uh, So the first year would be all Greek texts, Homer, Greek playwrights, Plato, Aristotle, Herodotus, Thucydides, the sophomore year would take us through a huge range from uh, Rome and the Hebrew Bible through the New Testament, uh, the Church Fathers, and into the Renaissance.
1: That's Christopher Nelson, president of St. John's College. In this special episode, guest interviewer Winston Elliott talks with Christopher Nelson about his work at St. John's College. And about the unique kind of liberal arts education offered there. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. In the last episode of the Common Ground podcast, we heard from Peter Kalkavich, a tutor at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. Peter and I talked a bit about that college, about the unique sort of liberal arts education it provides. And the ways in which the student experience there differs from the student experience at most colleges and universities across the country. While we were there, Gleaves Whitney, producer of the Common Ground podcast, had the chance to visit with the president of St. John's, Christopher Nelson. Also present was Winston Elliott, editor-in-chief of the Imaginative Conservative. Gleaves Whitney also asks a few questions near the end. Of the conversation. Winston interviewed Christopher Nelson about the mission of St. John's College and about why the college focuses on the great books, why it doesn't have any majors, and instead requires students to take the same core curriculum. We're happy to post that interview this week. We think it will be of interest to anyone interested in higher education in America. Thanks for listening. Now on to this week's episode of Common Ground.
2: So here we are at St. John's College with Christopher Nelson president of Naples campus of St. John's. Chris, 26 years. Yes, it's been a real privilege to be at the college all that time. Did you think when you came here that you would spend the rest of your career, 26 years of your life, being president
0: at St. John's? Well, I didn't have anything else to do, so I thought uh, it was a distinct possibility. I was certainly hoping that it would work and that uh, I could make that a career. Yeah, now, You had a long legal career before that. I did. I practiced for 18 years in Chicago. And during that time, I was also on the Board of Visitors and Governors and on the Alumni Association Board for some of that period. And uh, that kept me close to the college. Also was able to do some pro bono legal work for the school during that time.
2: Now, you also were an undergrad at St. John's. Yes and your father had
0: a long affiliation with the college. Yeah, my father uh, was here in the days when Stringfellow Barr was the president and Scott Buchanan the dean and these were of course the architects of the program that we enjoy right now. Uh, he was in the class of 1945 which is to say in a class in which nobody graduated in 1945 everybody off to the war and back so there there were 3 alumni from that class, all of them the sons of uh, ambassadors to Washington from other countries. <coughs> and then he stayed involved and was served on the board for 30 years uh, and was board chair. But it's the two of us plus my brother and sister and two of my sons and one of my nieces and her husband and my wife is now uh, in the Graduate Institute. So we've got 10 family members that have gone through the school. So you have not only a long professional legacy, but a
2: long family legacy. Yeah, I'm just one link in the chain. (laughs) Now, uh, you came here as an undergrad, and your father had already graduated from the college. So you kind of knew what to expect. But what was it like being an undergrad at St. John's
0: College? Well, these were, of course, the late 1960s. I was here from 66 to 70. spent uh, my first three years in Annapolis, met and married my wife who was a transfer student from Santa Fe and when we discovered in our junior year that we had a child on the way, we moved back to her home state which was New Mexico so that her mother could help us with the newborn baby and we could graduate together. So I had some experience on both campuses but you're talking about a time in the political life of the country which was uh, very active, the civil rights movement, the war in Vietnam bringing out a lot of activity. And St. John's was probably no different in some respects, Um, a certain kind of uh, rebellion against status quo, but much less here than probably anywhere else in the country because people were taking the books seriously and they were taking the time to fulfill their educational aspirations even while uh, there was a storm brewing on campuses across the country. Of course, we were close to the center of things, and there were people that marched on Washington, but they didn't miss classes to do it. So protests and sit-ins at Santa Fe while you were there? (laughs) No, there were no protests or sit-ins. The only sit-in I can remember as a student was when one of my classes walked into the dean's office and said that the learning process had come to a halt and we needed to talk about it. And his answer was, have you talked to your tutor, that is, the faculty member who ran the class? And we said no, and he said, that's where you go next. <laughs> and that was the end of our sit-in. That lasted about five minutes. <clears throat> <laughs> that's excellent.
2: Now, for people who are listening who don't understand or don't perhaps have never been introduced to the unique nature of the college, uh, both in its in its program, uh, but also in the methodology, uh, Uh, that
0: is used at St. John's. Could you uh, give an overview of that? Sure. There are several distinctive features to the college. We have an all-required curriculum, or nearly all-required, in books that have shaped uh, several civilizations in the Western tradition. Um, And we read these books in roughly chronological order. We don't have courses, and we don't permit lectures, and so what we have is a series of classes in mathematics and sciences, uh, music, foreign language, where we require all of the students to have a year and a half of uh, ancient Greek and a year and a half of modern French, and two semesters uh, of English Romantic poetry and then uh, 19th and 20th century poetry at the end of the senior year. Books are all read in roughly chronological order, and even in the sciences and mathematics, you're reading, for the most part, original works. So in the mathematics tutorial, the students start with Euclid and they read the better part of all 13 books. Um, they read Ptolemy and then in the sophomore year, start with Ptolemy, move to Apollonius, Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, and in the junior year through Newton and senior year through quantum mechanics and Heisenberg and Schrodinger uh, and Bohr and the like. Um, similar kind of trek through the laboratory. Uh, with early work in chemistry in the freshman year and in the junior and senior year they're working with um, uh, Newton through uh, traditional mechanics and optics and into uh, spooky action at a distance by the end of their senior year. Uh, And then the thing that we're best known for is the study of the classics read mostly in English translation from Homer, Uh, through the uh, second half of the 20th century. Writings in philosophy, literature, history, theology, uh, psychology, psychiatry, a range of things. Uh, So the first year would be all Greek texts, Homer, Greek playwrights, Plato, Aristotle, Herodotus, Thucydides. The sophomore year would take us through a huge range from Rome and the Hebrew Bible through the New Testament, uh, the church fathers, and into the Renaissance in the junior year, pretty much uh, 18th and 19th century, philosophy, uh, political philosophy, and the start of American papers and the founding uh, documents of this country, and in the senior year, um, 20th century, Uh, political philosophy, philosophy, theology, various other documents. So we read these in roughly chronological order, in part because the books are in conversation with one another over the centuries, and in part because we don't want to lay on to the books any particular interpretation. So we don't read Plato when we're studying philosophy. We read the book, the Republic, or the Mino, or the Gorgias, or whatever it might be. And we don't pretend to to categorize it. We try to understand what's being said and whether it makes a difference to us. So those are the fundamental questions. What's the author trying to say? And um, what's my stake in it? Is it true? So in terms of the curriculum, that's roughly how it works. Um, But the faculty are distinctive in this respect also, that they teach across the entire curriculum. Not every... Member of the faculty whom we call tutors teaches every single class, but most of them have taught, all of them have taught most of the classes. And that's to say, four years of mathematics, from elementary geometry through um, uh, relativity, and they will have taught biology in the labs and dissection of plants and animals to through to uh, quantum mechanics and. In Languages. They'll be reading in French and Greek. Uh, they'll have studied poetry and they'll be reading these other books and translation across the time. Music is the one, probably one area where perhaps only half the faculty uh, teaches in the program, others being a little concerned that they may not be able uh, to carry the tune well enough. <laughs> but uh, I think it's the music program in which the college comes to life. It's a a beautiful program, and all of the students play an instrument. They sing, and so their voice boxes become the instrument in their freshman year, and then they study uh, the analytics and, and elements of uh, melody, and harmony, uh, counterpoint, and the like in their sophomore year. So, in the faculty
2: itself, no departments. No specialization of the faculty once they're here, even though they may have their graduate work in philosophy or, or literature or
0: mathematics. Once they get here, uh, they are a tutor for the whole program. That's right, and that means that they're giving up something because it's very hard for members of the faculty to pursue uh, the specialization they were in, um, something that they may very well love because they have to be committed to teaching across the program and the number of classroom hours they teach here are well above average. They'll be teaching uh, 12 hour semesters each semester each year Uh, and they'll be teaching different making different preparations from year to year. So the idea, if I'm expressing this
2: right, please elaborate on this, but the idea is that the tutors are learners in the seminars and and tutorials and preceptorials and labs
0: as are the students. Well there's some truth to that. It's it's very much the case that there are faculty who are in the first time through a class only a week or two ahead of the students. Mm -hmm. If you take a modern physicist who comes to the faculty and now is teaching ancient Greek, well they would have had a summer to get a little head start and they will have had a support group with other members of the faculty but they won't have read through the material for the year and they, uh, they won't have mastered the subject. Now you might ask what in the world business do we have teaching Greek with people who have no experience with it? Well, my guess is that most would say around here that a person who's only taught the class for the first or second or third time probably the best person to be teaching it because they're still alive to learning. So they're expected to be very well prepared for the class but they're not expected to have devoted their lives to that. We expect our students to uh, study across the entire program and uh, therefore we ask our faculty to do the same. We don't think they should be doing less than our students. Um, And it means that a student in any given class can be referring to materials from another class and the faculty can pick it up with them so that what goes on in a junior language tutorial might very well pick up on something that someone had studied in a seminar or a music tutorial in the freshman year or the sophomore's um, uh, laboratory or something like that. So the conversations are allowed to be very free flowing. And you know, when you think about it, the human being lives a life in the whole world. Um, we do get forced to specialize for career purposes, but the depra- the brain isn't departmentalized by disciplines. That's something that we bring to our studies. Uh, well, so also we want to be students of the of the world. So
2: you've talked a little bit about uh, uh, you've talked a lot actually and and very helpfully about the what the content. Uh, of what students learn here, what well, the books they read, um, and that it is a very much an all required liberal learning program. Um, the heart of the education here, um, I've heard people say is, is what happens in seminar. What happens in seminar?
0: Hmm. Well, first of all, you have to understand what I meant when I said the faculty are not expected to lecture. Probably the best seminars are ones that belong to the students almost exclusively. So a seminar is opened with a question that the faculty member will ask. It's not a question that can be easily answered uh, by, you know, identifying this character having fought in that battle and that's the end of it. It's a question that would try to open up the book for a deep uh, conversation about what is going on, what the author's trying to say. And if it's a good seminar, the students will pick up on that question and take it wherever it goes. And the faculty member may never have to enter back in. But typically, a tutor will do so. and Typically, a tutor will then encourage someone who's trying to get into a conversation to to speak, because sometimes the conversation's animated with 18 people in the room, say. Uh, And every seminar will be very different even if it's on the same reading, because what question is used to open the conversation is gonna be different from class to class. So if, let's say there are seven classes of, or eight classes reading the first six books of Homer's Iliad. There will be two members of the faculty in each of those classes, and they will have asked some different opening question. So when the students get together after class, say in the coffee shop on a Monday night, they'll find that they can have a fresh conversation with other students because they will have read the same book, and they will have come to it with a very different question. And, of course, the question that the tutor may have asked uh, may simply be distracting to the class. The class is somewhere else, and they want to follow this, um, pursue a different line of argument or a different question. And it's important to let that happen in the classroom because... Our object is not to master material so much as to help students learn how to learn, how to make the education their own. And that is not done by securing answers, but by helping people ask good questions. So the tutor is going to ask an opening question and
2: perhaps follow-up questions as they go along, but they're not expecting uh, or demanding that their question dominate the two-hour conversation of seminar
0: at that time. No, no, that's right. Uh, There'll be differences among the various tutors on the campus, and some may come back to their opening question a couple of times, and there may be a really good reason for it, because they think that question will open up a much more fruitful line of inquiry than another. Uh, But mostly, they'll want to see where the conversation flows, because there's a reason that the conversation has left that question and gone on to something, and it may bring an insight to the tutor that he or she hadn't given any thought to, but there's someone in the class who's stumped or has a problem with something, and it's useful to get that out on the table and see what the class does with it.
2: So normally 17 or so students and two tutors in seminar?
0: 17 to 20, and two members of the faculty, usually a more senior member and a junior member, so that the junior faculty member can learn from the senior. In the tutorials and laboratory, the classes are smaller, 12 to 15. And there, they're just a single member of the faculty. Are they doing the same books in tutorial, or is it a different set of readings? Pretty much the same books. They may pursue them along uh, at different speeds, so that one class might be able to get to a book or a reading of some kind that another class doesn't get to. Uh, And there are occasional places where choices can be made, particularly in some of the scientific papers in the upper division um, or when they're doing poetry. Uh, There's a large selection of poems that the faculty might use and uh, some poets would be preferred by one class to another. So there's a little freedom that enters into the poetry reading and some of the scientific papers, but for the most part, they're reading the same thing and pretty much on the same schedule.
2: Certainly, it's somewhat unique, if not uh, uh, almost uh, a defining characteristic, or it is a defining characteristic of the college, to have almost all of the learning be experienced in conversation around common texts that the students and the tutors have read. Why is that better than sitting and listening to a lecture on the same book by
0: someone who might be an expert on it? Yeah. Well, we do have a a place in the program for lectures. So Friday night, I suppose, when students and many other colleges are off partying and the like, we will have a formal uh, lecture. So from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock, somebody can speak to a matter that's of great importance to them. It could be a member of our faculty or somebody coming in from outside. And after that lecture, there's a question period we don't permit any parties to open up on campus until after 10 o'clock so that everybody has some opportunity to be in that question period. But the question period is not as it is often in other places, you know, 15 minutes to 45 minutes following a formal lecture. This could go on well past midnight. It rarely would stop before 11 o'clock in the evening. So the question period goes considerably longer than the seminar and it is an opportunity for students to inquire of real experts and to learn something about a particular book in greater detail or about an idea or a problem so we don't dismiss it it's a question of choosing what we think is best for a student uh, to learn how to learn and to make the education their own Um, and that is that they need to participate in their education it's a little harder to participate as a listener a good listener is an active listener and not a passive one. And there are people who can learn extremely well uh, by lecture. But you're also only getting the one viewpoint that the lecturer is bringing. And very often, certainly my experience, when someone gives a lecture, there's some point along the way where I start to ask myself questions. And I want the lecturer to stop for a minute because I've I've got a problem. And um, you don't have that problem when you're in a classroom where you can pretty much stop the conversation wherever you are and explore it. But it does mean you're not going to get certain things done uh, that time. You know, you could come back, a lot of the same questions are the same questions we ask uh, perpetually over the course of a lifetime, and they've got four years here to ask many of the same questions in the context of different books. So we don't eschew the lecture, but we do think the students learn better by learning to both listen and speak, uh, and it also means that they're not just learning from a single teacher, but from others around the room. And That dynamic is very important, that they learn that they can uh, respect the viewpoints of their classmates, and that there's something they can learn from them every bit as much as something they might learn from the formal teacher in the room. So
2: to some degree, you're looking at the, the value of someone actively participating and offering their untested views
0: to the room to be tested that's uh, a very nice way of putting it untested in an environment that's safe when i say mean safe i mean their life is not on the line uh, they're not standing for political office or their job is not on the line they're actually there with other students who are sympathetic to the notion that this is a conversation where we're there to learn so you put an idea out and somebody punctures it and it's a stupid idea and you say ah thank you and there isn't any consequence to that except that you learned something now the first time you do that you're stubborn you stick to your answer and you try to defend it and everybody jumps in and they try to show you that maybe you haven't given this as much thought as you think you have and uh you if you're learning you hopefully have found a way to uh accept some of that help and advice so it makes it it brings about a kind of um humility that i think is necessary for learning learning doesn't take place unless you recognize that you have something you need to learn that's just to say you come from a position of ignorance i don't know something that's why i want to know it when you accept your ignorance uh the world is open to you. When you think you know the answers, the world is closed to you. And we want people to be as open as possible. And so we uh, accept that the books and the authors as teachers around the table have given a lot more thought to it than the uh, 18 or 19, 20 year olds at the table. And uh, there's a, uh, a kind of respect for them without it turning to awe. Uh, without it turning to reverence, but a kind of a radical inquiry into what we're studying because there's a respect that we can learn something from them and from what other people around the table are saying about them. So it's not a bull session, and there's a reason that there are blackboards in all the rooms. Students are constantly getting up to the board to demonstrate a proposition or to translate a sentence, or even in a seminar, which is much more free-flowing, where you don't have a body of material to get through. They may want to... punctuate some point that they're making or draw a picture that will help explain what words have a hard time explaining and uh, uh, they work at it so it's not only difficult texts but real work that goes on in the classroom.
2: We are in a culture that doesn't seem to promote uh, the things that you've just mentioned, polite, humble discourse. Um, it certainly doesn't in, our, in the public arena or in the political arena. It seems to be more important to choose your side and to uh, denigrate the other side. And, and if you are actually in a debate, to score debating points on the other, on the other side. Yeah. So how do you take students who are coming out of our, the culture we are in today and say, well, now we're going to go in a totally different way. You're, you're going to address each other as Mr. and Miss. You're going to address your tutor as Mr. or Mrs. or Miss. You're going to wait for the other person, and you're not going to just sit there and formulate your debating point response. You're actually going to listen to them with some degree of humility. Is it hard to bring students into that way of thinking?
0: Well, it takes a little time with many of them. Uh, I like to think that 10 weeks ought to be a sufficient period of time in the freshman year. That's just when they're reading Plato's Republic, which is kind of the perfect book. If you've been struggling with um, how to enter into a conversation or how not to dominate one, it takes a few weeks, and by the time you get to Plato, uh, you ought to be ready for it. But there are a few things that we do that we think help. Um, One is that the teachers, or what we call tutors, Uh, It's a word for a guide rather than a professor. Uh, It serves as a model. And if we had an aggressive member of the faculty trying to pound a point home, it would only invite more of the same from the students. So, Because the tutor is there to ask a question and open lines of inquiry and to listen respectfully to the students and not have it just be uh, professor to student student to professor, professor to student number two, professor to student number three, which is what a conversation looks like in many places. It's a way of uh, allowing other people to be talking to one another, and that's, that takes some skill. But the biggest skill is restraint on the part of the tutor. So it means that you have to put up with silences in the room. And some people can't stand a silence. A silence of five seconds seems like a minute. Uh, uh, A silence of 15 seconds is something that almost no professor can take without wanting to fill it up. It's only natural human response. Well, allowing silences to enter into a seminar actually turns out to encourage uh, respect and thoughtfulness. It means that people have time to formulate their thoughts. They have time to listen to somebody else. And they... um, they recognize that when somebody's misbehaving in a class, which will happen anytime, it could happen, but it happens particularly in the opening seminars of a freshman class, Um, there are other students around the room who say that's not what a St. John's class is, or a faculty member who's staring at them wondering when are you going to stop because you don't learn when you talk, you learn when you listen better. Um, So that people learn from one another, and the class takes responsibility for it. They they don't just expect the tutor in the room to uh, control the conversation. They have to learn how to control it themselves. And if they're going to control it themselves, they'd better be respectful and speak politely to their classmate, because they aren't going to be heard otherwise, they'll just get into a fight or an argument. So I think calling people by their last name with an address of Mr. or Ms., Um, raises the level of conversation. I think the faculty member serving as a model uh, raises it. And then you've got all those upperclassmen who've been doing this for a long time. And they uh, have conversations with the underclassmen all the time about what's going on, and they model it themselves. And so students learn quickly. We don't have a debating club. We don't actually publish grades. Students get grades. But if they're not there just to satisfy a professor or to get a grade it means they should be in the class for another reason and um, you're not going to get that point across by, by yelling or arguing. One other thing, the texts we choose are for the most part not contemporary. where do you get into arguments about in the political world? You're getting into an argument about a contemporary issue where you've already taken a side. You know, when I was in school, it was Vietnam. Were you for this war? Were you against it? And you had an army of arguments on both sides, a whole uh, bundle of things going on. But if you put them in the Melian dialogue in Thucydides' Peloponnesian War, you've kind of taken away the immediacy of the question. You've taken it out of the contemporary society and you've allowed to to address the same kinds of issues where might makes right. Is this the right way to uh, make war? Uh, Is it, is there a just war? Can one have justice in war? Um, Is it right that uh, war is for the sake simply of acquisition or what are you, what are you fighting about anyways? That's a good first question when you open Homer's Iliad. What are they fighting about? Um, you can imagine any number of things that would enter into that conversation. But because it somehow is not contemporary and of the day, the students don't come uh, to the book with prejudice. And a prejudice I mean simply something that's been preformed without reason, but because it's been passed on or inherited or it's been the way they were raised at the dining table and with their friends that has a powerful influence on civilizing the conversation.
2: I'm sometimes asked, well, uh, oh, St. John's, that's very conservative. Or I'll hear, I'll St. John's, they're very liberal there. Right. Is St. John's conservative, liberal? Is that part of the conversation in seminar? Yeah, it never comes
0: up. It's probably the most apolitical environment I've been in for some of the reasons that I just said. Uh, Stringfellow Barr was accused of being a communist, and in more recent years, yes, people have thought we were uh, conservative. One thing we've never been is conservative in this sense, that um, the the inquiry in the classroom is about a radical, deep questioning of the books. So it's not a uh, an antiquarian exercise where we've got books that we're there to preserve, books that are there simply to inherit Uh, and uh, take as gospel, so to speak. These are books that are supposed to serve as a basis for conversation. And of course, as we know, across Western civilization, they've been in conversation with each other for a long time. One author says something exactly the opposite of the other. Well, if you treat them all as antiquarian treasures that uh, somehow stand for the same thing, you're missing the point. The point is that there's been a dynamic conversation across the civilization for a long, long time and uh, we need to be a part of it. So we're not conservative in that sense. Uh, I'd say that the students don't have much choice in what they take, and I there are, are exceptions, a couple of exceptions where they can select a subject matter or a book to study more closely. Uh, but once they get in the classroom, it's the most democratic institution I know in the country. That is to say, Uh, it's not controlled by the faculty and one might say that's not a conservative mode but a very liberal mode which is to say um, we trust our students to have enough intelligence to get something out of all of this and we don't insist that we have all the answers and so we're open to a wide range of interpretations if you look at what our alumni go on to do They cover the full gamut out there in the left and the right uh, uh, on the uh, political scale. But they generally have thought through the positions they've taken, and they have reasons for them. And that's the most important thing.
2: I've heard it said by uh, a mutual friend of ours, Eva Brand, that uh, for a tutor to bring their contemporary political views into seminar would be the equivalent of a great sin.
0: (laughs) I think that's exactly right. I have occasionally seen someone bring in a chip on the shoulder, so to speak, an author that they just can't stand, um, or an author that they love so much they hate the idea that anyone else wouldn't. But a political view, we occasionally know... The politics of a few of our faculty members because they're public advocates or writers. But in the classroom, I I just can't see it. I don't think I've seen it. So the questions of
2: uh, ideological uh, influences on the campus, uh, in the classroom, uh, the questions of political correct uh, language or political correct uh, uh, monitoring of students, political correctness, um, doesn't seem to be a part of the St. John's conversation. No, it really doesn't.
0: You know, occasionally um, we've had outsiders come and interview the students. When we do, uh, we don't set them up with you know a particular group of students. We just say, go out in the quad and talk to them. And when there was a Naval Academy uh, cheating scandal a couple of decades ago on an exam, you know, they reporters were over here asking about our honor code and the students I heard outside my window, honor code. What is honor? <laughs> and then they'd go on and have a conversation among themselves about what honor might mean. And uh, well, what if we just said, the reporter said, that uh, an honor code means that we, we announce that we're not going to cheat. And the student response was, why would we cheat? We'd only be cheating ourselves. Well, as a president of a college, this is music to one's ear, right? That students actually care enough about what they're doing, that cheating uh, deprives them of learning themselves. But of course, uh, things do happen, you know. Oh, anytime there's writing and you've got uh, the internet the way it is, people are gonna Google things and every now and then you see, you know, Plagiarized piece, and we take these as uh, serious um, academic sins the way they are at other colleges, but the students uh, suffer a great deal of shame if such a thing uh, were to get about or were caught so I, I I think we see very little of it so
2: in turn you mentioned that grades are recorded but not reported right. um. I assume, of course, you have to have them available for grad school applications or something of that nature. That's right. Um, Could a student go through
0: four years at St. John's without knowing
2: what their grades were?
0: Well, I didn't know until I applied to law school in my senior year what my grades were. And I'd say that that was the strong culture here is that people knew there were grades. They weren't posted and they weren't given out in class, but you could always go and request them. But it means you actually had to face the registrar or someone in the dean's office and say, I'd like to see my grades. And um, that just became a kind of taboo. It's much more common today because people are thinking that they've got to build a sufficient resume to check the boxes and meet the requirements of the graduate school or their professional career. And it isn't discouraged by faculty and staff uh, in particular. It's just that uh, we want to show the example that the primary thing that's going on in the classroom is learning and learning for its own sake, not for the sake of the grade. But we don't uh, uh, we don't say to students that somehow you've committed a sin of looking at your own grades. That's <laughs> that's perfectly appropriate.
2: So in these days when so many. Students and parents are concerned about the cost of education. They're concerned about the career opportunities that your uh, college education will give you. What's the place of St. John's? What? What? How do students and parents look at a what is really a such a amazing commitment to liberal learning, and say, well, d- can I justify borrowing money for this? Will I be able to have the kind of career that will take? uh to support a family and to uh, pay off any debts I might have uh, from my education um, how does a family uh, measure that in your especially in the last five or ten years that have been challenges for liberal yeah. colleges
0: Well we do live in the world and when the world demands to know some of this information we certainly don't want to deprive them of it So we have surveys and we try to uh, keep some kind of record of what our alumni doing and do and the happy thing is that it is not the purpose of the college to prepare one for a particular job but we find that the accident is the happy accident I call it uh, is that uh, this kind of education pursued for its own sake in fact prepares you for the world for these other jobs. Um, and so we can show that, you know, we trot out all the people who've gone on into medicine or law or scientific research or uh, writing or communications or teaching any number of things, uh, investment banking. You know, These aren't things where we have classes in accounting or business ethics or that sort of thing but they learn the fundamentals of how to learn and how to pick things up when they go into a world where one is expected to specialize. Um, And our alumni seem to do very well. So as long as we're straight about that story, uh, not everybody believes it, but they can meet the alumni and the alumni are available, they come back to school, they meet with students, they serve as examples that they're successful in the world. But the other thing we have to remember is that there are very few of us who have passed our 30th or 40th birthday who are practicing in a field that we majored in when we were in college. People go through huge change and uh, certainly St. John's uh, students do change as the world changes, that is the alumni change jobs. What kind of education best prepares you for the unknowable, for the unknown? Uh, What kind of education prepares you for changing your life? And we think that this education does that, and then we can give examples of it. Uh, The third argument, I suppose, would be that people learn best the things that they love to learn. There's nothing like a love of learning or a desire to know that spurs one to do better work and to think more deeply about something. The better work they do, the more successful they're going to be in the world. And that's an axiom I've never heard anyone question.
2: So this this education, 18 to 22-year-olds generally show up for undergraduate education. What about those folks who <laughs> made different choices and later in life want to experience the St. John's liberal learning and seminar and conversation? Is there an opportunity for them to do it? Well, we're happy
0: that we'll be welcoming you, Winston, uh, to our graduate institute. Uh, my wife, who retired uh, three years ago, is now completing her degree requirements for the master's. So we have a Master of Arts in the liberal arts, and it's pursued in somewhat different way uh, than the undergraduates, and that's largely uh, because it's easier for people to take off certain kinds of chunks of work in their later years. That is, we we divided it up into kind of subject matters, which we wouldn't do with the undergraduates. So you could take a segment on politics and society or a segment on literature and poetry, a segment on philosophy and theology, or one on history, and you would get books that are along that theme. Um, there's a preceptorial in the Graduate Institute that's an option that's offered to students in that master's program to a much greater degree than it's offered to undergraduates and a preceptorial is an opportunity for a student to study in depth something that's closer to their heart. Several options available by members of the teaching faculty and you might spend a whole semester reading War and Peace together or doing a problem in um, uh, quantum mechanics or uh, Joyce's last preceptorial, my wife's last preceptorial, was on the neurobiology of the eye. Uh, So there are ways one can get into some of these other things and experiment. But the students in the Graduate Institute are ages 22 to 84 and it's open to all who have a desire to pursue things that they never had a chance to do in their undergraduate studies or that they thought were too difficult for them to do then.
2: And that can be done during the regular academic terms in fall and spring, but it can also be done in a summer combined with a summer program or in a summer-only
0: program. That's right. So in the summer, it would be eight weeks of an intense study. In the spring and fall, it would be 16 weeks to cover what the summer would do in eight so it would be a Monday and Thursday night for about four and a half hours each night and available therefore to people who are working uh, in Baltimore, Washington, Annapolis area or in the Santa Fe, Albuquerque area. And many people come from out of state to uh, study and enjoy that uh, privilege, uh, not just the people who are local and uh, and working their their ordinary careers.
2: I, I think it's important, that I haven't brought this up, but of course, uh, St. John's is also unique in that it's one college, two campuses, mm-hmm. um, and yet the Santa Fe campus and the Annapolis campus, have it, they look quite different from Annapolis with its colonial uh, flavor uh, to uh, Santa Fe in the Southwest, um, but at the same time, they have this, essentially the same program, both undergraduate and graduate, different tutors, of course. Um, But it is a kind of somewhat unique situation of two campuses doing the same uh, uh, curriculum with the same program, um, doing it in two different places. And I understand you can also, as an undergraduate
0: or as a graduate, take semesters in either place. Yeah, it's rare to have a transfer for just a semester, but many students take advantage of transferring for at least a year. So I transferred out to Santa Fe after three years in Annapolis to finish there in Santa Fe. The settings of the two campuses are entirely different. They are, in my judgment, if not the two most beautiful capitals in the United States. There's certainly two of them. Um, But once you get in the classroom, you couldn't tell the difference between a class being held in Santa Fe or one being held in Annapolis unless you looked out the window.
2: Well, I think it's a, it's a unique situation for someone to be able to know that they can go to the other campus, which is a, in a very different setting and, and a much different place, uh, part of the country, and yet at the same time still be able to read the same books they would have read and have many similar conversations, but uh, accented by the particular individuals and tutors in that room with them, uh, whether they're in Santa Fe or Annapolis. So you've spent your almost your entire adult life almost doing great books and representing a great books college mm. you like reading the great books
0: <laughs> I do indeed they're uh endlessly uh interesting they're exhaustive I mean one cannot ex- exhaust uh, the books and I find that I bring a different person to the reading every time I pick one up I've probably read the Iliad I don't know 25 30 times Uh, The Apology, probably the same, but there are other books that I've never gone back to a second time. Hegel's Phenomenology, for one, and The Critique of Pure Reason. I uh, went back to because I was teaching it when I came back to the college, but I find that a very difficult one for me. On the other hand, the texts in mathematics, I love revisiting. and uh, The Histories and Literature, which I don't think I appreciated when I was a boy. I grew to appreciate much more as an adult so my taste in the books has changed somewhat my love for Homer and Shakespeare hasn't changed but uh, for many of the others yes so if
2: there's one book you would always go back to what would it be
0: well I guess the one I first read which was the Iliad will always be a powerful draw for me um, Plato's Republic and the Apology do much the same for me. And because the Mino is at the heart of the program, I, I'm sure I read parts of that every year that I've been here as president. But when I was growing up, it was Prince Hal and uh, Henry IV, Part I, that I related to most. And I had my own false staff mis- <laughs> leading me astray. Uh, and my own uh, desire to become something better in the world, uh, as I think he did too. So there are are a number of them. And uh, the one I've been reading a little more closely and more frequently lately uh, is uh, George Eliot's Middlemarch. I find that a rich, rich world that she's created there and endlessly interesting.
2: So 26 years as president of St. John's here in Annapolis. Uh, Some of that time you also did double duty with Santa Fe, I remember. That's right.
0: And now, what's next? Well, I got a promotion. So the faculty uh, recommended me to the board to uh, continue as a member of the teaching faculty. So I'll be taking a sabbatical starting about a month from now. And I've got a book project or two underway and a contract for that. Um, which will be collections of things I've done and, and maybe another book on liberal education, but also something on gardens and gardening that my wife and I like to do together. And then she has to return to finish her master's degree, and I'll be in the classroom uh, as needed, undoubtedly not full-time, but uh, I'd like to start over and, and and do it with the freshmen first. So this will
2: be your third career. I guess you could say that well, I think it's uh it's marvelous for the students to get uh, to be able to have you as a tutor. I know the role of president involves so many other things in administration and management and fundraising uh, and being the public face of the college, um, some of which is fun, uh, some of which is not always fun um, so now, after twenty six years, what are you? most proud of that you did here at St. John's?
0: Well, frankly, I think it's been keeping the flame going in the program and in the uh, classroom. It's not easy to maintain a program like we have in a lively state um, with all of the pressures from abroad, from outside. Uh, good, Fortunately, there aren't very many pressures from the inside except to improve on it. Um, And so what I've tried to do and the thing that I hope I've succeeded at is to give faculty the freedom to play within the program, to build it, to make it stronger, and to try to keep at bay some of these outside pressures. So that's meant fundraising and um, messaging and recruiting and Uh, managing the business affairs and all of that to allow that freedom to flourish. But I think that's what I'm most proud of. So
2: what is the biggest challenge facing St. John's in the next decade under the new
0: leadership? I think it's the same challenge that most small liberal arts colleges are facing. That is that the world has become so much more utilitarian, uh, that the demands on small colleges... Uh, who are trying to carry the torch for a liberal education, are that they change themselves to the demands of the world, which is to say they should bring in more pre-professional courses. Uh, and very often schools are doing that and sacrificing some of their uh, integrity to the liberal education. That won't happen to St. John's. That is, it's it will not succumb to those kinds of pressures, but the pressures are there. And so these are financial pressures. They're recruiting pressures. They're the pressures of a world with so much noise that it's hard to get a clear and distinct message out. So we have to find ways of doing it. And let's face it, the world is moving to more and more to uh, uh, points of efficiency. Education is not efficient. Uh, One can deliver an online course to millions of people around the world. you could say is efficient because it costs less for the number of people touched but a good education and one that you can that helps to shape your life or to reshape it that requires one well educated expensively educated human being sitting with another one in relative confines of fairly small spaces in a small classroom You just can't get rid of that, it is human nature that you need humans around you to do this well. There are lots of things that can be done through technology and certainly some of what we do can be done that way, but it would be a loss if we brought that into our undergraduate program, even if we were to take it on um, in a broader sphere somehow to bring some of what we do to a bigger world. I think the small world is a very beautiful one, and it's harder and harder for small colleges to survive in this world. We're fortunate that we've got very good friends and alumni with means who can help support the college, and they've been doing that lovingly and well for decades now, and and will continue. So
2: even a small college dedicated to a very unique program of liberal learning can still in these times of materialism and utilitarian thought find a way to thrive and to continue to offer uh, the opportunity for deep and serious learning to students from 18
0: to 88? They can and they must. The fact is um, our faculty would give up all sorts of material means and and meeting personal needs of their own in order to let this continue uh, to flourish. And they've done that over the years. It's a generous uh, faculty that has uh, given of itself to its students and for the sake of protecting and promoting this very program.
2: It does seem to me in my experience of, of the college and talking to tutors here that the college is particularly unique in the idea that the faculty are not fighting over territory or department size, or uh, slots for tenure track. Um, they are dedicated first and foremost to the program. That's right. And they also seem incredibly collegial in terms of wanting to help o- other tutors, especially uh, some of the newer tutors, uh, as they immerse themselves into the program.
0: Yeah, it's a practice that we try to uh, honor and encourage the newest tutors with the privileges of of uh, special projects. So if we have money for a faculty study group, um, we'll want to make sure that younger people, not just the most senior ones, get the advantage of it. When it comes to asking faculty where they'd like to teach in the program, well, the dean is going to make the assignments, but we give everybody every year a chance to uh, indicate their preferences first preferences are always going to go to the junior members of the faculty because everyone wants to see them succeed and to thrive. And we all know the places where we need to work a little more, where we need uh, some support, uh, where we need to repeat a class because we just didn't quite get it the way we should have the first time around. And, we, and the faculty wants to encourage uh, the growth of the younger faculty in ways that make sense both to the school and to the tutors themselves. So in that respect, it's very generous. Instead of the senior members getting all the privileges, they tend to want them to be in the hands of the younger faculty.
3: You have been this outpost of education. And a lot of people blame, say, the Germans. And the German graduate model that was brought over to a university not far from where we sit, Johns Mm -hmm. Hopkins. Sure and the specialization, professionalization. In your opinion, is that what took education off in such a different direction that that hurt us, or is there something else that you think is really key to understanding why St. John's is necessary in a culture that emphasizes so many other ways to educate people? Yeah. First of all, I think
0: it's inevitable that we have schools which are professionalizing and advancing knowledge, which is something we wouldn't say about St. John's or any liberal arts college. Um, Johns Hopkins is a wonderful example of that. The question is, in my mind, what does an undergraduate need and deserve? And what does this country need and deserve? Well, it certainly needs the Johns Hopkins, the Stanford's the Harvard's, the great um, graduate schools around the country. It will need specialists in all sorts of things, but most of all, it needs thoughtful adults who have an independence of mind and a freedom of thought, uh, a fearlessness to express themselves, um, and a, a, a group of students, uh, of, uh, of citizens who will extend the frontiers wherever they are not just the frontiers of the geographical borders of our country or of the world and searching out uh, new places in space, but the frontiers of science, the frontiers of technology, the frontiers of medicine, of law, of any number of things, uh, of journalism, politics, that people are going to enter into. And it requires a certain kind of independence of mind and an understanding of foundations so, they know where they came from uh, and what was necessary to uh, understand before going into a specialist. So, I think it's more a question of when in your life do you need this and how can you be the best at uh, a, a professional in the world. The best pro- professional is not just someone who relies on an expertise that was developed by others but one who has a sufficient independence of mind and an imagination to say, I see what the world looks like today, and I've got an idea of how to make it better, and I can go about and do that. And that's the mind that we hope we are helping to develop when students are coming to liberal arts colleges like this one.
3: And my last question is, so many of us are involved in campuses where as you know, there's a postmodern sort of attitude. There is no truth. Uh, we have privileged now racism, sexism, you know, postcolonialism. What is the St. John's? What is President Nelson's message uh, to say? Wait a second. There's a different way of looking at learning. It doesn't always have to be through that. Why, why should we, or how should we answer those critics? Well,
0: I've never known someone. Who didn't think some things were better than others and didn't think that some things were false and some things were true now how do you do that if you don't have a standard of some kind in other words i don't think i've ever believed anybody who said there's no such thing as truth because i constantly ask any question of them and they say well that's not right i said bingo it's not right you have recognized a truth somewhere let's explore what that is the human being has a desire to know its desire to know something not nothing also has a soul, has a desire to be fed in some way, and it wants to be fed by good things. We all desire to be better human beings. I don't think we, it's a rare pathology that enters into a human being that causes one to say, I want to be worse tomorrow than I am today. Well, there are reasons for that. There's, There's such a thing as truth, and there's such a thing as goodness, uh, that we strive for, and we all know it in our bones because we raise our children that way, we pursue our life uh, with the desire to know more and to be better, and we ought to recognize therefore that we can't simply dismiss the truth even if we may not ever discover it because every answer we get only raises another question so it doesn't bother me at all to speak about the truth when I can imagine I've never possessed it. Uh, it's the search for the truth that seems to me to me the most important thing. And it's not a game. It's life.
3: And with regard to all the people who say we should be focusing on sexism and racism and classism and post-colonialism, well, how, how do you respond to that? Yeah.
0: All of these are uh, important issues for us to deal with. That is, there is discrimination there. There are people that are put in uh, positions that uh, are degrading and not uh, encouraging a a human potential. Uh, But what's underneath it all is some notion of what a human being ought to be. And it's uh, categorizing them and putting them in a box is exactly the thing that uh, keeps us from flourishing. What we want to do is escape our caves. We want to escape the confines of our disciplines and of our tribe, tribalism uh, that, that are kind of natural to us. It, it, uh, this, it's not an accident that in the allegory of the cave in Plato's Republic, the people who leave the cave don't do it alone. They actually have to be dragged up that rocky slope they need help because it's hard. It's a hard trip and people don't like to take it. It's very easy to want to get caught in these confines and uh, the isms and uh, uh, kind of tribal groupings that you started out with, but uh, they're confining. They don't lead to freedom. At the same time, there are circumstances that affect all of us that are also confining and we have to face those. I mean. That's what a good political world does: is identify the things that restrict us from uh, what uh, from, from the human freedom to find a happiness in the world. And uh, there is injustice, and there is unhappiness in the world. And we've got to address that, but we should address it with an open mind, not a closed one.
2: You now, it's uh, it's been an incredible one of the gifts of Saint, the Saint John's uh, College. Uh, curriculum and the tutors and the students is that on our website, the Imagine Conservative, we've had an opportunity to publish uh, many essays by you and Eva Brand and Peter Kalkavage, um, and alumni of the college, um, David Levine and other uh, of your colleagues from the Santa Fe campus. Um, it's been a really a gift for us to be able to take your deep insights into liberal learning and to the great books and to the Western tradition and to be able to offer that to our audience across the world, um, and to t- essentially be able to offer the message and the content and also the approach of St. John's to millions of people. And that's been a tremendous uh,
0: privilege for us, and so I, I greatly appreciate that. Well, we're grateful, too. That is The opportunity to get these things seen and read and heard by millions of people is not something that we could manage on our own. And so we're grateful to the Imaginative Conservative for helping us do that and for understanding what about this college is worth uh, promoting and preserving. So thank well, you. Well,
2: you and I both have had the uh, the opportunity to spend time with Gleaves Whitney at the Hallenstein Center and to go out and, and speak there in Grand Rapids. Yes. And, uh, and as has Eva Brand. And so it has been a great opportunity for both of us to be able to, uh, to talk about liberal learning, uh, to talk about kind of what are the things that make, make up our republic and what's going to preserve it. And so we appreciate that opportunity to do things with, uh, with Gleaves and the uh, folks at the Houndstein Center there in, Gar- in Grand Rapids. And I would just say it's been an incredible, incredible privilege for me over the last decade. Uh, to know you we met in a conference discussing we great did, books indeed. and uh, it, all these years I have respected and admired not only your great commitment to liberal learning which to a degree is your life so I'm not surprised that that, that that's what you're committed to but also with the great integrity and humility that you bring to talking about what you do at St. John's taking the St. John's message out beyond uh, the confines of the campus uh, here and in Santa Fe, and that you do that in a way that I just think is uh, to be respected and to be uh, uh, considered a model uh, for those of us who are out trying to have a discourse about the most important ideas, uh, the most important questions that the human person can answer. And I am considered an, an honor and privilege to have worked with you, uh, had the opportunity to work with you over these years, and uh, I'm hoping to come uh, sit in on some of your uh, uh, classes uh, and when you come back from your sabbatical as tutor. Uh, so I thank you uh, for all these years and for the opportunity to, uh, to be an adopted part of the St. John's community to some
0: degree. Well, thank you very much, Winston, and <laughs> you are a welcome member of the St. John's community, now just a month away from enrolling
3: in the, in the school. <laughs> President Nelson, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. It's been a pleasure.
1: That was Christopher Nelson, president of St. John's College, interviewed by Winston Elliott. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Hauenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Hauenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and the right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies, and I don't think I need to say what a year it's been for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit Follow and follow Hauenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at JoeHoganCGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.